This talk was part of the conference Future Perfect, where actors came from a variety of world-building disciplines, from art and fiction to law and science, explored the uses, abuses, and paradoxes of speculative futures. For more information, visit datasociety.net. Ruha Benjamin's presentation entitled Designer and Discarded Genomes, Experimenting with Sociological Imagination Through Speculative Methods, uses speculative field notes to explore the antecedents and implications of the current era of genetic engineering. Ruha Benjamin is a sociologist and an assistant professor in the Department of African American Studies at Princeton University. Her work sits at the intersection of studies of science, technology and society and race, ethnicity and gender. So thank you to the organizers, Data and Society, everyone behind the scenes getting us together, to, uh, getting us together today. Um, it's really my uh, pleasure and privilege to be here. So the title of my comments are Designer and Discarded Genomes. Beauty, health, fitness, IQ, these are not static universals, but lively battlegrounds. Routinely violent, casually eugenic, and euphemistically wrapped in a moral prophylactic, human betterment. But better for whom, we rarely ask. In this presentation, I experiment with the genre of ethnographic field notes, presenting a factual entry from an ongoing project on the social dimensions of genetic engineering alongside two fictional entries that take the reader 200 years into the past and 200 years into the future in order to explore the antecedents and implications of the current era of genetic engineering. Each note is necessarily partial with multiple possible beginnings and endings, and you'll only hear one today. Taking the sociological imagination seriously, this exercise employs speculative methods to explore the relationality of innovation and containment, asking who and what is fixed in place, corralled and coerced, so others are free to innovate the future. More to the point, in the process of designing ideal genomes, what versions of humanity are potentially discarded? So to begin, field note excerpt one, by invitation only. Harvard Medical School, Boston, Massachusetts, May 10th, 2016. Anticipation was in the air, old friends, new acquaintances, and profitable collaborations. History is being made, said one speaker after another, history and synthetic genomes. I didn't realize until sitting at the airport on my way to Boston that this was intended to be a closed session. The organizers asked participants not to contact any media outlets or tweet about the meeting. We intentionally did not invite the media because we want everyone to speak freely and candidly without concerns about being misquoted or misinterpreted as discussions evolve. In response, synthetic biologist Drew Endy tweeted, if you need secrecy to discuss your proposed research, you are doing something wrong. Originally, the meeting was called the Human Genome Project 2, a successor to the first initiative that culminated in the early 2000s with a map of humanity's genetic blueprint. 
But in response to criticism, the HGP2 organizers rebranded the current initiative, Human Genome Project Right. They were moving beyond reading what is to composing what should be. Designer DNA, couture cells, Prada proteins, must-have mitochondria. One of the first pilot projects to come out of HGP Right raised quite a bit of discussion. A team of researchers were working to synthesize a prototropic human that can produce all needed amino acids so there would be no need to eat. I hear someone next to me whisper to their neighbor, but what if I like to eat? <laughs> the researcher at the front of the room continues, we've been experimenting with nutrition and food since the Old Testament. What's the big deal, he implies. The entire project is framed in the context of global food scarcity, but several of those in attendance politely object. I would venture to guess people suffering from malnutrition are not looking to, syn to synthetic genomes. Another person exclaimed, I urge everyone to think very hard about the problems you're trying to solve, like feeding the world. There's enough food, it's just not well enough distributed. Think hard about whether a technological solution is even necessary. The presentations continue. Technological fixes for social problems, where fixing is not only about solving, but also holding some things in place. A schedule change is announced, the addition of a last-minute lunch panel focused on ethics. <laughs> it's unacceptable that there's only one panel on ethics at the end of the day, some influential person must have told the organizers. I'm used to it by now. The ethics panel at the very end of the schedule it usually runs over on the last page of the program, standing between exhausted and hungry meeting-goers and a fancy reception. But not this time. Now, we also have a last-minute lunch panel. And unlike all the other sessions where pins can be heard dropping, the ethics are hard to hear. Between bags of chips popping open and sandwich wrappers peeling apart, three panelists address the relevance of what one participant referred to as sexy eugenic topics for HGP right. Among the many ethical issues on the table, the tension between underreporting research and over-promising breakthroughs to the public was of great concern to those deeply invested in the initiative. What, after all, is the perfect amount of information to generate support without frightening people? Surely we shouldn't mention prototropic humans right off the bat, someone in the second row chimed in. Even I'm freaked out by that. Then there was the ethics panelist who described his company's effort to grow therapeutic human cells in pigs. Will pigs have human feelings, an audience member asked to nervous laughter. If this meeting was in Europe, you'd have protesters at the building entrance, said a man standing in the back. And finally, the question of who is and should be captaining this ship was asked again and again. Field note excerpt two. Middle Passage, Mitochondria, The Voyager, somewhere between the door of no return and the New World, May 10th, 1816. Who's captaining this ship? Whispered the woman crammed next to me. She was the only one I knew, another Mende from a neighboring village. A voice not far away was singing in a language I didn't understand. She was trying to soothe the shivering boy curled next to her. But mostly there was silence and the murmurs of those who were trying to make sense of where we are. In several dialects, I understood the words aliens, catastrophe, abduction, and jump, 
All of us packed so tightly. Lying on my back, I could not bend my knees without bumping the slab of wood holding the person above me. Finally, it's time to go above deck for the afternoon meal. But most of my companions refuse to eat the daily ration of horse beans. A man with leathery skin and a limp threatens us with his cat, a multi-tailed whip interwoven with wire that smells of dried blood. After a few dozen lashes, a few slowly open their mouths and take the ration. But most of us absorb the sting, squeezing one another's hands in stubborn refusal. We have extra time on deck today. The smell from below had finally grown so strong that the captain ordered the crew to fumigate, scrub, and rinse. Pouring vinegar on the floors and, sm and smoking the cargo area with tobacco, they eased the stench of excrement and urine and tried to dissolve the dried filth of vomit, blood, and mucus. Meanwhile, the one trying to feed us turned from frustrated to furious. He stormed toward the front of the ship and came back with a hideous contraption to force, force our mouths open. One by one, he poured spoonfuls down our throats. We could hear the captain shouting, don't choke the bloody devils, we need them alive. Finally, it was my turn. As he forced my lips open and struck the back of my throat with the wooden lever, I could feel the nasty beans roll over my tongue. When I started to cough it back up, I could feel his foul breath on my neck as he growled. It's too bad we can't breed you fucking heathens without mouths. Would make my job a whole lot easier. Just then, I felt the chain around my ankle yank and caught the eye of the Mende woman on the end of the line. In seconds, we all made it overboard. And hovering over the restless sea, I looked back at the alien ship one last time before we flew away. Field note excerpt three, restricted access. Foodie colony M4E5T8, island in the South Pacific, May 10th, 2216. As the aero train pulled out of the station, the captain reminded everyone to strap in. The trip to the colony was shorter than I expected. The transportation authority warnings always made it seem as if it were another planet and that the foodies were a different species. But when we pulled up along the shore close enough to see the inhabitants, excited chatter turned to shock as everyone realized that the stories we grew up with, foodies with protruding jaws and bloated bellies whose babies hung from their mother's breasts like monkeys, were flat-out lies. The figures staring back at us from the island did not seem alien. Most looked just like proteas, the vast majority of us who are genetically edited to self-sustain. As the Earth entered a period that our ancestors dubbed the Anthropocene and the ecosystem began to collapse as a result of human gluttony, food supplies could no longer sustain the growing population. But initial breakthroughs stalled and dozens of failed clinical trials on four continents failed to produce a viable prote genome. It was three generations before researchers were able to figure out the exact synthesis. Colony M4E5T8 is one of nine, filled with the children and grandchildren of those failed trials. The public, as it turns out, is hungry to learn more about the foodies, which is where my research comes in. 
While I wait for my team to arrive in a few days, I'll set up the interview schedule and other logistics with the colony administrators. After I walk from the aerotrain to the guest quarters, I look over my notes. To keep things simple, I group the respondents, breastfeeders, children, teenagers, and all other adults. I'll decide whether to disaggregate after the first round of pilot interviews. I've already configured the coding software using the themes outlined in my proposal, nursing and attachment and small children, food preparation and gender roles, hospitality and religious customs, diet and self-image, generational exchanges and family traditions. We'll incorporate other forms of foodie sociality as they arise, grounded theory and all that. Just as I sat down in the corner of the dining hall to observe the first meal, I was startled by a child with a crown of fluffy brown hair and sticky hands grabbing my fingers, saying, you're new, come on, you can sit with me. Postscript. Producing speculative field notes as a methodological exercise is a way to fashion possible futures and probable pasts enabling analysts to critically reflect on the present. In experimenting with the line between fact and fiction, we can begin to question the assumption of inevitability that surrounds technological development. In this moment of social crisis, where even the most basic assertion that black lives matter is contested, we are drowning in the facts of inequality and injustice. Whether it's a new study on health disparities or another a video of police brutality, demanding empirical evidence of systematic wrongdoing can have a kind of perverse quality, as if subjugated people must petition again and again for admission into the category human, for which empathy is rationed and applications are routinely denied. In this context, Novel fictions that reimagine and rework all that is taken for granted about the current structure of the social world, alternatives to capitalism, racism, and patriarchy, are urgently needed. Fictions in this sense are not falsehoods, but refashionings through which analysts can experiment with different scenarios, trajectories, and reversals, elaborating new values and testing different possibilities for creating more just and equitable societies. Such fictions are not meant to convince others of what is, but to expand our own visions of what's possible. This is not to say that imagining alternatives is sufficient or that all things possible are even desirable. But how will we know if we do not routinely push the boundaries of our own thinking, which includes the stories we tell about the world? In the words of historian Robin D.G. Kelly, we must tap the well of our own collective imaginations that we do what earlier generations have done, dream. Without new visions, we don't know what to build, only what to knock down. We not only end up confused, rudderless, and cynical, but we forget that making a revolution is not a series of clever maneuvers and tactics, but a process that can and must transform us. It's with this in mind that I finished my first book, People's Science, where towards the end of the revision process, I was finally able to articulate the tension that stands at the heart of that book. Why is it that we can imagine growing cardiac cells in a lab, but not growing empathy for other human beings in our everyday lives? For many, the idea that we can defy politics as usual and channel human ingenuity towards more cooperative and inclusive and just forms of social organization well, that's utterly far-fetched, and yet we can imagine this. 
Our collective imaginations tend to shrink when confronted with entrenched inequality and injustice. Thus, I'm convinced that we must query this faith in biological regeneration that stands alongside an underdeveloped investment in social transformation. The speculative exercise I've shared today is an attempt to hold myself accountable to the query I buried in people's science, to formulate a critique of the power-knowledge nexus, and to construct new fictions, though not without their own tensions and contradictions. Throughout, it's my aim to take the notion of sociological imagination seriously and envision possible futures and pasts where science, power, and subjectivity are reconfigured differently, defiantly, and hopefully. Thank you.